This week on Up at 3 a.m., the Academy has introduced some new changes that will affect next year's Oscars. Also, AMC and Universal are beefing over how the theater release schedule should look after this post-pandemic world. Also, some interesting tidbits have come out from the recent Evil Dead uh, reboot. So let's get into it. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, or afternoon or night, whenever you're listening to this. It is currently 6.28 a.m. on a beautiful Saturday morning here in the world, too, albeit slightly cloudy. Um, hope everyone is staying safe in these uh, wacky times that we live in, trying to avoid the pesky T-virus. Also, happy May. It's May 2nd now. We're in a new month. We're close to halfway through 2020 already. I could be optimistic and say, hey, it's going to get better, but I don't know at this point. 2020 keeps throwing new DLCs ev- everywhere, and every here and there, and it's it's kind of off-putting. It's kind of upsetting, but I guess and I'm kinda, I'm a more pessimistic type of guy. I'm a more half-empty guy. So I'm probably not your go-to guy for optimism, but for the sake of you guys, it's going to get better, I think. I don't know. Anyway, it's you know what it is. It is your boy Paco. It is another episode of Up at 3 a.m. Um, and I'm this might be a slightly longer episode because some of the bigger stories are a little more in-depth. Um, but I'll try, I'll try to keep it as short as I can, um, but, but bear with me. Like I said, it's going to be uh, maybe a slightly longer episode. Um, but I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Um, as of last week's episode, like I said, I was not in the right mind space last episode. So that one didn't, I didn't feel as too hot as, as with that episode, how it came out. I don't know why I put it up, but I felt like I needed to put that out there. Um, but here I am. I'm better mood. I'm ready to get at these stories. Um, so let's dive into it. First off, the Oscars decided to implement some new rules or at least um, lightning. I don't know how do I say it or being they're playing a little loose on some of the rules and some new changes considering our current situation um some of them at least are usually when a movie to, for a movie to be qualified for like contend like being a contender or, um it has to have a, like a, a theatrical run of at least i think a week in major in major outlets like uh LA, New York, Chicago, big cities like that um and also, so, and that that's kind of been a a, a deterrent for streaming because not really m- most of their shits like don't have the theatrical run. So you can see why like it was they tried they tried for like the Irishman have limited theatrical runs and stuff like that. Um, and it's been around since what since since uh, I want to say twenty fifteen when Beast and No Nation came out and that was a Netflix movie and it had big potential to be an Oscar contender, but but that's when like the, the discussion started of like should streaming be allowed and stuff anyway usually like i said movies have should be a week should be in the theater for at least a week in major outlets but now they're being a little lean lean it on that and now if movies that head to streaming um instead of instead of need instead of a 78 theatrical run the academy has their own exclusive like streaming service for like uh voters and stuff and the the movie has to be on their streaming service within sixty days of hitting the video on demand or VOD or streaming, and has to has to have had planned for a theatrical release. Um, they're also expanding the number of theaters that are qual that are qualifiers for theatrical runs. Given not all, most theaters aren't open right now, some some states are reopening again, um, but not everywhere. So they're expanding the number of theaters that can. I can qualify that, like once they reopen. But once theaters reopen, when everything is slightly back to normal, movies will have to do the seven-day rule. Um, so this is like a time-specific rule change. Um, also, a change-up. Usually, the the addition of this new streaming service has come from uh, moving out of the physical screener. Which, if you don't know what a screener is, it's when it's usually a copy of the movie, like a DVD or something, that they'll send to the the voter. That they can watch at home, but they're but they're deciding to move from that, and that's why they're implementing the new streaming service. So that's going to be uh, that'll be interesting to see getting rid of the screeners like that. And I believe other screeners have moved towards like digital anyway. They usually come with like a watermark that says whatever the screening title is, or maybe the the studio name on it, like over or somewhere in the corner, because of you know pirating people that try to get the movie on on websites or some stuff like that um some category changes 
um, the sound categories. There's two of them, editing and mixing. If you don't know the difference, editing is like getting the sounds for the movie and mixing is like working with them or for better lack of a term, editing is like you getting the materials to build a house and mixing is like the action of building the house. And the change comes because a lot of the times when it comes to the Oscars, usually it's the same movie. Usually the, it's the same movie that wins both of those categories. So they decided why not hey, just put them together so they win just like that, which also shortens the previous number of 23 Oscar categories to 20 or 24 to 23 Oscar categories. Um, so yeah, there's that. And there were some other things along the likes too of some qualifications for best international film, foreign film. I'm not sure which one it is, but there's some changes into that. Some other smaller things as well. But yeah, Oscars have decided to Oscars have decided to change up their 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 system, which I think is a good move on their part. Um, and yeah, we'll see how we'll see how where the rest of the year takes us because. It's it's an interesting it's an interesting point at this time for for movies and movie theaters alike. But moving on, um, probably the big story. Oh no, I'm going to get this one out of the way and then we'll get to that story. But in the news of delays, Lionsgate has had made a major major calendar shift for for some of their movies. Uh, a lot of them were some smaller ones, but I'll go through the bigger ones. The bigger ones being John Wick Chapter Four, which was originally scheduled for. May twenty May twenty first of next year is now moving to May twenty seventh, twenty twenty two. Um, Antebellum, the new horror movie starring Janelle Monet, was supposed to come out sometime last month around April on like April twenty fourth, but it's now moving to August twenty first. Um, the Hitman's Wife Bodyguard, the sequel to the Hitman's Bodyguard starring Sam Jackson, uh, Ryan Reynolds and Salma Hayek, is now moving to August twenty eighth, twenty twenty one, instead of August twenty eighth of this year. And the big one that breaks my heart. Uh, a spiral of the new saw the, the new saw movie, um, starring Chris Rock and Samuel Jackson, is now moving to May twenty first, twenty twenty one, taking up that original John Wick date instead of being released May twentieth of this year. That one breaks my heart because, um, I guess general rule of the podcast, I'm a big fan of the Saw franchise. It's one of those franchises that got me into horror. Aside from that, and uh, oh no, I said no. I have to put. Nightmare on Elm Street and Final Destination got me into horror and Saw kind of came in afterwards and kind of introduced me to torture porn, I guess. So Saw is a big a big meaning in my life, okay? So yeah, there's that. So just some quick little delays from Lionsgate and their calendar switch. But the big story that came out is AMC and Universal beefing about some comments that NBC Universal CEO Jeff Shell made. And when I first read into the story, I thought it was kind of stupid. Thinking back on it, I can kind of see where AMC is coming from. But the story basically goes is that recently Trolls World Tour came out on premium VOD, BVOD, uh, premium VOD. You know, it made a decent, I believe, around over a hundred million at the time of this recording, um, which which is about almost matching. How much the first Trolls made in its first three weeks on a theatrical run. And and Shell said that World Tour basically exceeded expectations as to how successful premium video on demand can be. Um, saying that it was a good move on their part. And they're looking into when theaters reopen, not only will they release the movie in theaters, but they'll also re- release it co-currently on premium uh, VOD. Uh so that's basically what he said, but this is AMC Theaters Chair CEO Adam Aaron uh, chimed in. He's sending a strongly worded letter to, to Universal saying that Shell's comments were disappointing to us, but just comments as to Universal's unilateral actions and intentions have left us with no choice. Therefore, effective immediately... AMC will no longer play any Universal movies in any of our theaters in the United States, Europe, or the Middle East. Now, AMC is like I believe is I believe the biggest theater chain in the world. Yeah, I think roughly in the world. And to have like that's he, they're basically backing out one whole studio, a studio that is bankable 
profitable off their movies. I mean, by by AMC making this decision, you're getting rid of movies like uh, Fast and Furious 9, the new Jurassic World 3, whenever that comes out, um, the new Candyman horror movie, that, the new Candyman remake that's coming out, uh, I don't remember, oh, later in September. Um, there was another one, but I can't think of it at the moment. Uh, let me look real quick. No, yeah, but you get my idea. It's ex- movies like those, which are are bangable. I mean, Fast and Furious is probably one of the biggest grossing franchises right now in our time. Jurassic World has made some decent amount of money, even if they're not so hot movies. And then Candyman is just a good thing. Granted, you have other theaters to choose from, but. This, but this also marks a big thing of how how studios and theaters aren't interacting with each other right or don't interact on the level that they should be and in in responding to uh Aaron's letter universal said that they that they absolutely believe in the theatrical experience and have made no statement to the contrary as we stated earlier going forward we expect to release future films directly to theaters as well on premium video on premium VOD when that distribution outlet makes sense. We look forward to having additional private conversations with our exhibition partners, but are disappointed by the seemingly coordinated attempt from AMC and NATO to confuse our position in our actions. Now, did they have to bring NATO into it? No, I believe, I don't think they had to. And if you're wondering, NATO is not the, not the world organization one, but it's the national association of theater organization that kind of like help and look into like theater, theater theater situations such issues and to have to universal that dig to take to take a dig at nato when they weren't really like doing anything um i mean nato did respond to universal saying that they may be making decisions without consulting their partners it's kind of a destructive tendency to do that um i think the nato dig was kind of unnecessary but and universal and universal with that statement is also saying like hey fuck yo <laughs> we think we're doing what we think is best that was all on Tuesday, and then Wednesday, uh, Cineworld Group, who are owners of Regal Entertainment, Regal Theaters, they vo- decided to chime in and voice their opinions on the whole debacle as well, saying its policy on respecting the window is clear and well-known in the industry, and they also say that we make it clear that we won't be showing any movies to fail to respect the window, which basically says Regal is also opting out universal, like saying, hey, if you don't want to like respect the, the theater-going experience, you can all can fuck off. So now Regal, which is I think the second biggest chain in the world, is saying no, y'all, Universal can't have a spot in our theaters, and so it's getting it was getting kind of serious. And then the International Union of Cinemas, which is like a more worldwide one, added their added their own two cents and said that the current situation shouldn't lead to a rush away from traditional models. And I tend to agree with um, the International Union of Cinemas. I think from this whole get go, I was thinking that my my opinion was that look right now is a different situation it's a difficult time and this shouldn't be exactly uh i guess like a a test run for pre, for premium uh pvod because as 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 the union of cinemas puts it um stating things like this stating things like the success of, success of trolls should only be looked at through our current situation people are locked in with many cinemas closed so of course they'll look they'll look towards vod and also what helped in the success is part of the marketing played to the interest of many families since the kids films and one of the only available kid movies out right now, which makes it more pleasing. So, of course, more families are going to uh, go to it. And also they said these strange times shouldn't be a reference to change up a longstanding and proven release model, especially in a time where theater needs support. Now, to play both sides, I can see where Universal is coming from. Um, sure, they'll, they'll stick with the theater release model, but they also see an, an opportunity and premium VOD where people can instead of having to go to the theater for for spending who knows how much money on tickets and concessions, uh, they can just watch it at home, rent it for like rent it for about the price of a ticket, and just watch it in their home. And there's also like tons of people saying that like the theater theater chains are eventually gonna die out anyway. Um, so the future is yeah. Like, premium VOD and along the likes. But like I said, my opinion is more leaning towards the Union of Cinema's opinion that right now it's a different time. People like people are home. People are 
don't have anywhere to go. So they'll look to their options of streaming pre, uh, VOD content. And yes, the, uh, the idea of getting a movie that's usually in theaters on TV is very appealing. But the theater, the, the theater release is a, is, is it's a longstanding, traditional, proven, like, uh, model of how to release a movie and where to release a movie. And just going to the theater is a whole different experience than just being at home. Sure, at home, you can pause it. You know, you got snacks, you know, you're chill. But the theater is a whole different thing when you're watching it. Which a bunch, because let's say, let's, let's say Endgame, Avengers Endgame came out on premium v, uh, VOD. Which probably wouldn't, because that's a movie too bank and would not put in theaters. But let's say that you're not going to get the same feeling watching that movie as you would in the theater. I went, I, sp- I gave nearly, let's see, one, two, I gave about nine hours of my life to that movie opening weekend. I saw it early on Wednesday because I worked at, I worked at Alamo Draft House at the time. And, and usually the employees got to see movies early. And so we watched it. I watched it a day early on Wednesday. I watched it then. I watched it. And then I watched it again. I think Friday, Friday night. And then I watched it again Saturday night. So I spent nine hours of my life with that movie. And each experience was, granted, in the moment, it was hype. And being in an audience, witnessing moments like Cap uh, lifting up Thor's hammer for like the first time and beating Thanos' ass with it. Iron Man doing the snap and, you know, saying, I am Iron Man, you know, boof. Um, things like that. Seeing Thanos get his head cut off in, in the theater and hearing the gasp of the audience. You're not going to get that at home. And so I see where Universal's coming from saying, hey, we're going to go to streaming. We're going to do it in theaters and streaming. But I think it's kind of dumb in the sense of, like, why do it at the same time? Like, do one or the other. You know what I mean? I could be wrong. You could disagree with me. Once again, like I said, I don't care if you do. My opinion is where it's at. I think I can see where they're coming from, but I think it's also a stupid decision. Uh, I think this whole beef is stupid in the first place. Um, so I have the sense of like, uh, just I don't know. It's childish beef. That's what it is. It's just childish. Um, I think AMC could have well. They could have been a little more lenient with their words, and Universal could have played it more safe instead of having to take the 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 jab at them and NATO, which is, like I said, childish. But anyway, that's what I that's how I feel about that. Um, but yeah, those that's that kind of concludes our our bigger our bigger stories for this week. So let's get into the some quick little some quick little developments and maybe some other slight delays and and let's go over that. So yeah. Moving on into some quick little headlines and things that caught my eye. Um, Radio Silence is a directing collective of made up of three dudes. Um, they've made uh, some short films, mainly in the VHS. The first VHS movie, um, Southbound, which are both horror, anthology- horror anthologies that I suggest you check out. They're really good. VHS is good, but the second one is a little bit better. And the third one is just straight ass. So avoid the third one. I think if you watch that one, watch it out of, like, curiosity. But, anyway, uh, Radio Silence, oh, they also directed last year's Ready or Night, Ready or Not, starring Samara Weaving. Really great, underrated horror comedy that deserves more attention. But anyway, their new their new film that they're working on is called The Ice Beneath Her, which is based on a book by Camille Grebe that follows a detective and psychological profiler working to solve the case of a young woman found beheaded in the home of a prominent businessman, quickly evolving into a race against time. So not only was that revealed that they're working on that, but Daisy Ridley, 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 I'm sorry if I butcher that, is in talks to to to, to be in the movie, which is going to be exciting. I mean, I'm here for whatever Radio Silence is here is is doing next, and to see Daisy uh, Ridley starting to take the roles outside of the Star Wars universe, it'll be it'll be cool to see. Also, news out from HBO, they are developing a a, new, a Hellraiser series. Um, if you're not aware of Hellraiser, classic Pinhead, spawned a bunch of sequels. A lot of them ended up straight to VOD, straight to DVD, I guess. But um, it is supposed to be set as an elevated continuation slash expansion of the mythology instead of being a direct reboot or sequel. But what what's interesting about this is that 
Mark Verheiden and Michael Daughtry, who are set to write and produce, who have also worked on episodes of Ash vs. Evil Dead, the movie Trick or Treat, and Godzilla King of the Monsters, among other things. And David Gordon Green is, direct, is set to direct some episodes while probably being a producer as well, which is which is news in itself, which I think is really interesting. Michael Daugherty and Mike Verheiden are, are, are some decent names in the horror genre. David Gordon Green, who recently did uh, the Halloween reboot last uh, 20, in 2018. Damn, 2018 already? Jeez. But yeah, he, he did 2018. Um, he directed that one. And the sequel that's supposed to come out, I believe... I think it's set for later this year, unless they unless they've rescheduled it. But yeah, so Hellraiser series, I think it'd be dope. I think it'd be an interesting look, an interesting new way to take on the, the Pinhead character. Um, saying that it could be more maybe anthology like or no, probably not. No, it'll probably be more like a direct story narrative type thing. But yeah, it'll be cool to see what comes out of that. Also, now you see me three, a sequel no one asked for. <laughs> As in the works from Eric Warren Singer, who was Oscar-nominated Oscar co-writer on American Hustle, who says they'll try to capture the fun, magic, and of the original while also introducing new characters and offering roles for the OG cast to come back. Now You See Me, it's the movie where, with the magicians, starring Woody Harrelson, Jesse Eisenberg, um, Ella Fisher, and Dave Franco, the first one anyway. The second one switched out uh, Ella Fisher for Lizzie Kaplan. Um, but yeah, they were, they were heisting, heisting magicians that followed a code of this like ancient magic society or something. I don't know. They're not, they're not, they're entertaining, not exactly good movies, but I guess the third one, well, I mean, you can, I'll, well, I don't know where you're going to supposed to go with this one, but I mean, do what you can, I guess. Will I be taking that out? Maybe. I don't know. I wasn't really a fan of the other ones. Now you see me as one of those movies that I watched that I watched that first and was like, yeah, this was pretty cool. And then I rewatch it again. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> also, Riley Stearns, who's the director on The Artist of Defense and Fault, both amazing movies I suggest you check out. Great movies. I like Fault a little bit more than Art of Self Defense. I like them both, but I like Fault a little bit more. Is working on a new sci fi film called Duel, following a woman who gets a terminal disease and decides to clone herself for her family to cope only for her to make a miraculous recovery, but her clone already being out in the world. It is set to start Karen Gillan of Avengers Infinity War and stuff, Aaron Paul, Jesse Eisenberg, and said to take a, satir a satirical look on on things. It's supposed to be a satirical movie. Um, I'm excited. I mean, I like Riley Stern's work, as I said. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how he takes on a sci-fi movie. Um, Faults was more of a thriller. How I put it? Cotton. Yeah, psychological thriller. I put it. Really great movie. Art of Self Defense was more a, a, like a dark comedy. Also, really well done. But yeah, check those out. And I'm excited for, to see what he does with, in the sci fi genre. Also, Goosebumps is being developed into a new show, probably 25 years since the original aired, from producer Neil H. Moritz, who is a big. who's under the name of his production company, is original film. You usually see them at the beginning of all, most of the newer Fast and Furious movies. But Goosebumps, it could be interesting. I think it could be take some, some nice turns in this current world that we live in. It could have some social commentary, for all I know, and knowing how they'll probably do that. It'll be nice to see Goosebumps come back, and whether they take, like, I would assume a more kid. It'll be more kid-friendly, I would assume. But I'll... Because Goosebumps is like good starter, starting horror, starter horror, in that sense that like it's horror that like it's uh, where an adult can have fun, but it also like introduces your kids to the genre. A good example would be like The House of a Clock in the Walls, the recent movie that Eli Roth did with Jack Black and Kate Blanchett. It's a fun, it's a kids movie, but it's got enough horror elements to where like, oh, like you could introduce your kid like through this kind of like also. Maybe a little, no, no, I don't want to say entirely extreme, but Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark as well as a good starter horror movie. So yeah, it'd be interesting. And also, I guess, a way of revitalizing the franchise or the name, I guess, and bringing it to a new audience. Also, and the word, speaking of new audiences, an animated Transformers prequel is in the works from Hasbro, said to be apart from the live action ones. 
set to be directed by Josh Cooley, who just won an Oscar off of Toy Story 4. And writers Andrew Bear and Gabriel Ferrari are penning the script, and they've apparently been working trying to get this movie made for quite a while. Um, I think it'll be refreshing to take to take the Transformers back into the animated world. Granted, they have some smaller like animated series going on at the moment, but the set to have it be apart from live action ones, namely the Michael Bay franchise and the Bumblebee the, the Bumblebee spinoff or solo movie. I think it'll be it could be really cool. It could be really and depending on like what animation style they take, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of good potential in this. I have I have I have good faith in it. Um, and speaking of Transformers, there's another live action Transformers movie that I didn't even know was a thing, but apparently it's set for June twenty fourth for twenty twenty two. So yeah, I guess that's a thing. I don't know where that's supposed to go. I mean, because the main the main franchise is directed by Michael Bay. One out of all of them, the best one probably has to be the first one. I mean. It's not that good either, but it got it was enough sensibility to like, oh okay. Second one straight ass, bro. Straight booty cheeks. The third one, it got it was a little bit better, but still not on the level of like the first one. The fourth one, straight ass. The fifth one, also ass. Uh and Bumblebee is was a surprising, refreshing, like actually like carrying take on on that. That wasn't as it was action heavy when it needed to be, and it was kinda cool to see. But it also wasn't like over the top as like a Michael Bay film. So yeah, animated sequel or prequel, I'm down for it. Both probably taking place on Cybertron and the relationship between Optimus Prime and Megatron. I'm down. I'm here for it. And then also live act in the world in the name of live action remakes, Hercules, the Disney movie, is getting a live action remake with the Russo brothers producing and Dave Callahan, who who wrote on on the upcoming Shang Chi movie, is writing the script. Uh, this could be interesting. I mean, Disney is kind of hit or miss with their live action movies. Um, I personally don't really care for them. I don't be watching them like that. Um, like, okay, like the Cinderella one I liked. Yeah, Cinderella one I liked. Um, the Jungle Bowl one was really, was kind of good. Uh, I saw part of Aladdin. It was all right. It wasn't that, it was, it was okay. It had its moments. Um, I didn't watch The Lion King. Because um, I didn't, like I said, I didn't care. Dumbo wasn't really that good. Um, so yeah, Hercules, this could be a hit or miss, like I said. But you got people like the Russo brothers involved. Um, it could be interesting. I mean, if you can top the, the, Dwayne, the, Dwayne, the Dwayne Johnson Hercules movie, then I guess you're in the go. I mean, that one was, also that one's not as good. But still, Anyway, Hercules, live action remake. Are you here for it? Let me know. I don't know. <laughs> also, uh, uh, writers Joe Shrapnel and Anna Waterhouse, who recently worked on the Seaberg movie, Sam Kristen Stewart, are working on a new G.I. Joe sequel for Paramount. Um, if you're not aware, there's a slight G.I. Joe universe movie universe going on with G.I. Joe The Rise of Cobra that came out, starring Chan and Tina, Marlon Wayans, that set up a G.I. Joe universe, and then G.I. Joe Retaliation, which brought in players like like Dwayne Johnson, Bruce Willis, um, and then so and then apparently there's, and then there's the new Snake Eyes spinoff movie that could have some potential. Henry Golding is playing the titular role, along with people like Equal Wise in it. Always love me some Equal Wise, and apparently this sequel is supposed to like build off that spinoff. And so yeah, new G.I. Joe movie if you're into that. I mean, that's, there you go, new, new G.I. Joe movie. So that, that about does it for our headlines. But I wanted to throw in some random knowledge or some stuff that came to light. Um, so if you're on, also another rule of this podcast, I, I, love, I love the Evil Dead franchise. Um, and I have a nice, I mean, if you haven't seen Evil Dead, you probably should get on that i mean it's a classic the first one's a classic second one is kind of a uh, sort of retelling slash remake of the first one but well but hella goofier and the third one takes it like medieval time time travel type shit it's goofy and then the remake and then the remake in 2013 was hello 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 bloody hello graphic hello gruesome more serious than like the original i guess but 
just as visceral, just as great. And the show Ash vs. Evil Dead ran for three seasons, sadly. Um, I believe all three of them are on Netflix now if you want to catch it. It's it's a great show. I love the show. Um, very goofy, very horror comedy. Uh, we're also getting some solid scares in there. Um, but no, recently, uh, Fede Alvarez, who's a director on the Evil Dead remake, um, recently went on Bloody Disgusting's The Boo Crew podcast and gave some nice little tidbits, some behind the scenes towards um, on some retelling of Evil Dead. Like, for one, if you watch, if you've seen the Evil Dead remake, uh, you've probably seen the theater, the theatrical ending where it was uh, Mia, Mia, our main character, walking away into the woods at the end of the movie. The alternate ending showed her um, walking down, walking into the road, walking down the road, and she kind of faints in there. A truck comes by, sees her, helps her, picks her up, and takes her. And it ends with uh, the camera zooming in on her eyes as she opens them kind of suspiciously. Well, those were those were like the two original endings. But Alvarez recently revealed that there were two other endings. One, they shot a little bit where it was a homage, I guess, to the original Evil Dead ending. And that one, it was the demon that that's like signature demon POV shot coming through the woods, through into the house and coming at Ash and like, ah, zooming in on his face as he screams. So this ending was supposed to be a homage to that kind of the same thing. Demon POV coming through the woods, through the house and zooming in. Summoning in and coming on attacking Mia as she like screams. Um, and then the other, the other ending was only scripted, and it was supposed to, and it was supposed to be the same thing, the same setup, same POV thing, except when it comes to when it comes to Mia, instead of like zooming in on her face, it kind of like comes at her, and she starts to float or levitate, um, and she has her limbs being ripped apart like one by one or something, and end up and kind of exploding in like a bomb of blood as Alvarez puts it, which would have been quite a shock, maybe quite a punch, punch to the gut of the audience. Um, and I believe that was the one they originally wanted to do. But Sam Raimi, the, the man himself, said that Mia should live because she just went through all of this, all this trouble. She got possessed, you know, came back, ended the abomination, and was like, and just to have her, like, die, I mean, granted, some, um, uh, I'll get into that, but but yeah, he said it wouldn't be it wouldn't be satisfying to uh, for the character or for the audience to have that happen. And if Alvarez brought up that, telling me that well, Ash technically died in the first room in the first movie because before before like not not including the sequel or anything, but if you just left the Evil Dead as it is, the ending could could basically be looked at as Ash did die and like the demon came back and like attacked him but Raimi says he did that because he didn't think Ash deserved to live I mean like what had he done you know he didn't he, he didn't think he deserved to live so that's why it seemed it ended that way um so yeah so they didn't want so Mia didn't die thanks to Sam Raimi uh, and then uh but yeah but because if I, I'm I'm a fan of things like that, I guess, where things don't go the way the audience wants it to go. Granted, can that be a, a miss like a misstep? Yes, because you're not always gonna get the intended response, I guess. Because maybe an audience will grow too attached to a character. Yeah, maybe they'll grow they'll grow too attached to a character and be like, "Well, what the fuck? You're like, why'd you kill them? Like, why did they die? Why did they have to die?" Um. Which I'll bring it, which I'll bring back up uh, later in the podcast. But yeah, things like that, or just alternate endings in general where people aren't satisfied. That's a whole different. That's a whole different thing to get into. But uh, audience can audiences can be stupid sometimes. Anyway, also at the end of uh, the credits in the, in the post credit scene in Evil Dead, um, Ash comes back. It's just a quick like I think he's picking up the ne- the Necronomicon, which is their book of the dead. If you see a picture of it, you'll probably recognize it. Um, it's like him picking it up and the camera zooms up, is on his face and he's like groovy and then like turns to like the camera just a quick little like fun little tidbit but apparently he was supposed to have a bigger cameo in the film um, and that alternate ending where Mia's picked up by the truck driver the driver was supposed to be Ash but Bruce, Bruce Campbell himself shot it down saying like it doesn't make it doesn't feel right for the character and to just to have him coincidentally show up 
uh, with Mia. And then there's all there's been I don't I believe Fede Alvarez had an idea for a sequel, and there were talks of a Mia Ash team up in the sequel, and and even uh thing even like ideas to where maybe Mia might have been related to Ash at some at some at some way in the backstory. But the reason it never materialized is because Sam Raimi um, was still wanting to bring Ash versus Evil Dead at the time. And so he had his ideas and how he wanted the story to go. And that could have uh, led to like conflicting mythology or lore between Raimi's ideas and Alvarez's ideas. So that's why that didn't really come up. I mean, as for the future of the Evil Dead franchise, um, Ash versus Evil Dead was canceled. I don't know if it was like last year. It was a bit, it's been like a year or two, I think. So it got canceled, sadly, undeservingly, because it was a great show. I think probably because of viewership is why it probably got canceled. Um, there's that, and then there's a apparently there's another Evil Dead in the works from a different, a different like young filmmaker. Um, but Sam Raimi himself has said that if uh any a sequel to the remake wouldn't is not out of the picture. I mean, um, he says he'll do it, but if Alvarez comes back to write or direct it or both. So I'm still holding out for Alvarez's sequel. Um, but yeah, that was just a little bit of Evil Dead backstory slash knowledge that I wanted to get out of there. Um, so yeah, we're coming close to the end of the podcast. And you know what comes up next, our weekly what have we been watching. So let's move on with that, shall we? Well, we've made it close to the end of the podcast. We are now in our segment of what if, what if our what is our watching history like this week? And I'm going to tell you, I didn't really watch that much this week. I was kind of slacking this week. Um, I watched the new Netflix movie Extraction, directed by Sam Hargrave, starring Chris Hemsworth, produced by the Russo brothers and written by, I think, Joe Russo. Um, I wasn't going to watch it last week, hopefully in time for the podcast to talk about on the podcast, but I didn't really, but I didn't, I didn't have time. I didn't get around to it. So I watched it literally like the day, the day the podcast came out, I, I watched it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of a generic story. Um, of this, of this hitman, no mercenary, pressing this kid, get him out of, get him out of the city. What I will give props to this though, um, is some of the acting, especially Chris Hemsworth, bringing some life to that role. And the action is, is 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 amazing. It it is really good, um, very brutal, very hand to hand combat. It's also a nice departure for, for, I guess at this point after Endgame, it's just nice to see what our heroes are are gonna be up to, aside from the MCU, like Chris Evans. He did Knives Out, and recently he's on the uh, Apple TV show, defending Jacob. Um, Chris Evans did Extraction. Uh, but it's just nice to see our MCU heroes outside of the MCU doing something. Um, props to this movie because, like I said, the action is pretty on point. Brutal hand-to-hand combat scenes. There's a scene where it's an 11-minute... Is it 11? I think it's a 10, 10 to 12-minute long take. Quote-unquote long take. That is really, really intense, really well-handled. It's uh, amazing to see how they pull that off. Especially watching some of the behind the scenes where you see like Sam Hargrave, the director, like was actually like on the hood of a car, like following the car chasing, shooting them like that and stuff. Because he he's uh, a stuntman, he's he's a stuntman slash stunt coordinator, and it's worked on a couple of the MCU films. So it's always nice to see like a, some someone of that of that line of work, uh, of that line of work, um, like take on directing action and stuff. So yeah, extraction. I give it as I, I oh, what I'm what I, what I was gonna bring up was the ending of this movie. Spoilers, spoiler, spoiler alert. Now's your time to leave. Maybe I'll play some horns right here. I'll play some horns or something. The end of the movie is kind of left up to to your imagination because. They get Chris Hemsworth gets the kid to his his bosses, and he goes into like a pretty big shootout. 
oh if there's one thing that frustrated about the to me about that was frustrating me about this movie it was the ending and especially well only in the sense of how chris Hemsworth goes out well he, he goes it's like a final like big shootout he takes some pretty heavy hits and he's kind of fine but then there's this there's this goon kid who comes who comes out of nowhere and shoots and shoots him in the neck now earlier the the bad guys in this movie was like just like drug dude but he wasn't really that threatening he didn't really feel like a bad guy um but yeah he would and he has like some kids do out his dirty work for him and there was this one like one teenager in specific that was like really trying to like impress him so so he took it upon himself to try and get the kid back and kill Chris Hemsworth and like somewhere like maybe halfway through the movie that kid and like a couple of other kids try to like attack him but Probably my one of my favorite fight scenes is that Crimson Hemsworth just like slapping a bunch of kids around, which is fucking hilarious. It's a great fight scene, but it's also fucking hilarious to just watch him slap kids around. Um, but yeah, but in the end, for have this to have this kid, the goon kid, come out out of nowhere with no explanation as to why the fuck he was there, how the fuck he got there, and and to to shoot Chris Hemsworth in the neck, I'm like, bro, that's kind of lazy writing in my opinion. And I was frustrated, not for the sense of that, like, oh, I grew to like the character. It was more of the writing sense and how they executed that. Because I thought it was executed poorly. I mean, I kind of, ex- I was expecting Chris Simpson to die anyway. Um, so that didn't bother me. It's just the sense of that writing, taking that route of like, oh, yeah. he, did, he And then he shows up and kills him. I'm like, where the fuck was this kid? We, like, literally left him after the scene and never heard from him again. And you're just going to bring him in to, like, kill Chris Simpson? I'm like, bro, really? But anyway, that's frustrating to me. But then he t- Chris Hemsworth takes the shot to the neck and falls over the is around the bridge, falls over into the water. And you're left to believe he probably died. But then in the end, it shows the kid like having a good time. He's swimming at a pool. When he comes out of the water, you see someone in the back who looks like Chris Hemsworth. Um, yeah, who looks like Chris Hemsworth. And uh, so you're led to believe that maybe he's alive, but you can't tell. So they kind of leave it ambiguous. And from what I... From from some, from what director Sam Howard has said, he said that apparently in the original, the original ending, it was put like Chris Hemsworth was supposed to die, like he was gonna die, like that. That's how they were gonna end it. But apparently, audiences were like sp- test audiences were split on it. Some were like, "Oh yeah, he died. That's cool, like understandable." And some were like, "Well, why do you have to die? What the fuck?" So to their interest, they decided that they decided to make the ending ambiguous, so the ending can be what you want. Um, which I can understand. Test audience are kind of stupid anyway, but but I I I I'd like to believe he died, but apparently there's also and I believe talks have started for a sequel, maybe even a prequel. Maybe if you go sequel, then and somehow bring back Chris Hemsworth, then you have then it's canon that oh yeah he survived. But if you do prequel, then it's still left up to the mind of whether he died or not. Like I said, me personally, I prefer that he died. I think he died. It was the way for him to go out. He found something worth living for. He found something to protect. I guess that's the argument for if he survived. He did find something worth living for, and you can't just go out like that. Anyway, the ending is ambiguous. I like to think he died. I'm still pissed over that idea to have the kid come in and kill him. Stupid writing. Anyway, I saw that movie. I saw Victoria. Um... Not the not the horror one that apparently people were too scared to finish on Netflix. I still haven't watched that one, but no, I'm what I'm talking about the one from 2015, which is a, uh, is it German? I forget if it's German. Some of the homies are German, but the main protagonist chick uh, girl is uh, Spanish. But basically, if you want to talk long takes, this movie is the definition of a long take. And I'm not talking like, oh, yeah, it's a long take with hidden cuts or anything. No, I mean, it's a legit long take. I was reading into the behind the scenes, and apparently the director had wanted to make a film like this for quite for a bit. And when he pitched it to the people, like the studio heads, they were like kind of like iffy about like the whole long take thing. So what he did was he shot the movie, but with cuts in between. It was still long take-ish because they were like, they were like, because they were like 10 minute long takes or like a certain amount of long takes, but there was cuts in between. So um, it would kind of flow easier, but the director himself has said that like, that's not, it's not that good of a version. It's not his favorite version. And so 
they only had enough money in the budget to for three attempts at this movie. I don't know if it means like budget overall or budget like like they they had a certain amount of budget money, but then he shot that like the 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 cut up version, and then this was the money that was left over. I'm not sure, but the money in their budget was only only let them have the movie or to shoot the movie for three three attempts. They had three attempts to shoot this movie. The first attempt failed because the actors were too were too reserved or too like cautious of like what they were gonna do or how they were acting. So boom, one take down. The second attempt, the actors were a little too crazy, <laughs> according to the director, a little too crazy. So boom, that's another take. And apparently the director had like a talk with the, the crew and the cast, like, hey, we gotta get our shit together. We only have one more shot at this. And then boom, the first one I believe is like, yeah, that's the that's the one. This is the one. And yeah, it was shot over a couple hours. I forget where exactly. I want I think there I think it takes place in in Germany, but I'm not hundred percent sure if it is in Germany. If it was shot in Germany. Um but yeah, it is it follows this um girl named Victoria. He runs into a group of guys, uh a bunch of a bunch of some German dudes, and they and they end up going on uh they end up hanging out for the night, just chilling, talking, and and then eventually things escalate when they get involved in a bank robbery. It's really good. I, it's definitely a marvel to like look at. I was like, whoa, like this is like this shit's still going. This shit really, really doesn't stop. Like, now are there hidden cuts in there? There could be. It's hard, really hard to point them out because, like I said, it looks it's, it's supposed to be one long take. It was so I'm not, and I do believe it looks exactly like one long take. Like nineteen seventeen is a long, supposed to be two long takes. You can see, you can kind of tell where cuts are and stuff. But this one is like no, like someone is just there with a camera following these people around. But yeah, it's a, definitely a marvel to look at. Some of the acting is kind of good. Um, yeah, some of the acting is pretty on point, and uh, I think it's worth checking out definitely. Um, yeah, a great movie. Those are the only movies I saw this week. What I did see though, Gangs of London. Holy fuck. Gangs of London. No, not the video game. Although this is slightly based off the video game. But um, it was a new uh, new series from Gareth Evans and Matt Flannery. I believe that's his name. Gareth Evans, of course, director of the Raid movies. Apostle. Apostle? Apostle? Apostle on Netflix. Really great action sequences. I remember seeing a trailer for this come out. And I was hyped because I was like, oh, Gareth Evans is making a foray into TV. Okay. And they showed some of the action sequences that go down. I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah, this is that Evans, like, style of, like, directing. Um, so I was hyped. I was in. The story looked hella cool. Or the story looked interesting. So dope. I mean, the action was on point. So I just like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check it out. It's nine, eight episodes. I forget if it's nine or eight or nine episodes. Um. But it follows basically this big prominent crime lord gets murdered, and all the gangs and all the gangs in London start to like have a power struggle or fight for power. Yeah, he's he's murdered. His his family, his gang, I guess, is starting to have to struggle with other gangs for power as everyone wants to take over half a piece of it. Meanwhile, the son of the murdered crime lord is like, "Hey, I don't want to know. I need to know who killed my father." There's another guy who and another guy who gets involved in stuff, helping him find them. Like it's it's a great. I think it's a pretty good story. I like some of the character arts it takes, um, and the action. Holy fuck, is the action amazing? When it hits, it hits, bro. The standouts have to be, um, a certain one-on-one axe fight. I believe in episode three. I want to say episode three, and then. Episode five is just a whole, like all the whole episode is a marvel in itself, a master a bit master class in tension, build up and exquisite action directing, bro. And it's just great. I might do a bonus episode on that, so keep an eye out for that in the next coming weeks. I might. I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure yet. That would be a long one because I'm gonna go spoiler spoiler heavy into the the episodes. Some deep dives, I guess, into like the action sequences and stuff. So I might do that. And then also I finished up Dave, which if you're aware of, 
it's um it's a show following Dave uh Lil Dicky, real name Dave Bird. And it's kind of like a semi autobiographical like series of him trying to make it into like the music game and trying to be, make a bigger name for himself. Now, this uh show can you can watch it and you can probably easily it starts off in like bro humor and kind of like dick shows and stuff with like sprinkles of like kind of like serious thought or like a deep thought and like stuff like um episode three talking about like sexual fetishes and how it can influence a relationship or something but it sprinkles little things of it but once you get into episode five episode five um hype man holy fuck bro that one hits like i like literally tear up a little bit because I, i felt for the character that they were spotlighting on and i kind of felt for him kind of related to him i was like damn that one it was a deep episode and it's certain it's a turn it's definitely a turning point in the show to where like from then on it still mixes like the humor but it has like more like character moments and stuff like that because like that one six is definitely a, a powerful episode as well and then the last two episodes holy fuck though those are but no this there's a lot i'm probably gonna do a bonus episode on this as well because there's so much good like setup and writing that builds up to like what is a probably a mass a masterful like season finale really well done final scene um but yeah dave really great show i I suggest you i recommend that you watch it but yeah so yeah that's been this week on up at 3 a.m like i said keep a lookout for a day bonus episode and probably a Gangs of London bonus episode, depending on how much time I, I, I have. Um, uh, quick question to all y'all listeners out there. Do you think dreams or like, have you ever had a dream like emotionally like affect you when you woke up or like maybe something happened in it that like made you rethink your life for a bit? Because I had an episode in it, I had a dream like that. Uh, the other day, oh no, yesterday, yeah, yesterday morning, I woke up from a dream, granted with the enhancement of some little things I won't talk about, but I woke, there was a moment in that dream where, like, I woke up, and, like, it hit me differently because of what uh, I was on the other day, or the day before, it hit, like, I woke up, and it hit me differently, and I was like, damn, this this shit hits like I mean, I had like I had to sit on it and it made me think my life rethink my life a bit. I'm like, damn. Anyway, do you think dreams can have an emotional impact on you? Because I think they do. That's your that's your question for this week. Anyway, so yeah, it's been another episode of Up at Three AM. I'm your host Paco, DJ. Spin me out of here, bro. Hear the music. Coming to you from the glorious 402, it is your boy Paco signing off on another excellent episode of Up at 3 a.m. Diving into everything entertainment news from film to TV, maybe some reviews, give you a rant or two. A guest can come on for all I know, but it's late and I'm tired as hell, and that's my cue for me to leave. So until next time, ladies and gentlemen, keep it steady.